Our sole guest this week is a most interesting fellow. His name is Herb Payne. He has commented, he's done a number of things, but he has been recently a blogger and commentator on the political scene in Arizona. I think you'll find him to be a most interesting guest. From KTAR News, this is The Think Tank, hosted by Dr. Mike O'Neill. Her pain is the... Uh, author of the blog In the Center Lang with Herb Payne on Substack. He has been a social and political commentator for years on KJAZZ and was at one point a political candidate for Congress in 2006 and also for the school board in Oakland. I gather both unsuccessful. You're right. How fortunate I was. (laughs) So... You're an interesting guy. By the way, I've had my eye on you for years and just never got around to calling you. I'm glad you so, did. So uh, welcome to the show. And I want let's, – let's start – what's really bugging you more than anything else? What grips you right now? I think the thing that's been bugging me more than anything else, frankly, uh, Mike, is the assault on our, on our democracy, uh, the assault on free speech. Uh, the assault on education, the efforts to whitewash American history. You know, about six, well, 2006, you referred to my run for Congress. At that time, West Side, it was, I remember West I Side. I ran for a Democrat, uh, as a Democrat in what was then Congressional District 3. John Shattuck was the incumbent. Oh, it was a suicide run. I well, it was, an, up, it was yeah. an uphill battle. In a heavily Republican district. But <laughs> we probably did better than any prior candidate uh, before or since had Still done got it. whooped, I believe. We, we, <laughs> we had a healthy margin, I would say. <laughs> uh, closer, I say, than anybody else had ever done. But what was emblematic of that run was a, a strong feeling on my part, and I think it was the, the first words in every speech that I made. And this is now, you know, 17 years ago, and it's finally taken and getting up ahead of steam that, Amer- that democracy was at risk, that there were forces at play that were intent on rolling back decades of progressive social and economic progress. Uh, so I've been trying to work on um, what releasing my ex- exercising my political voice since then, and that theme of the risk to which democracy currently stands has become more intense for me. Uh, this is really the issue that bothers me the most, and I see it cutting across all areas from you know politics to theater to education uh, to censorship in universities and schools, Mike. So. Yeah, let's amplify those a little bit. Uh, let's talk about university because we were t- we were last couple of shows we've done have been sort of K twelve education. Where's the censorship in American universities? My my take is it was historically from the right, and currently it's now much more from the left. I think it's from both sides, and I think that's the problem that that the university campus as well as the school campus. Mm-hmm has been the laboratory for extremism. And so while the right wing has censored uh, any efforts to rewrite American history and civics, uh, or for that matter, uh, encourage an anti-science, anti-intellectual focus, you've got what, uh, not politely, the woke side or the Mm -hmm. left side uh, says, you know, this guy doesn't agree with our point of view. We're going to boo him off campus. He's not going to allow it to speak. That is anti-democratic on both sides. 
And it doesn't no, it's anti-intellectual as well. Anti-intellectual. I mean, well, that I mean, is if, the great American if, if any place on earth ought to be the safe place for vigorous discussion from both sides of any issue, it ought to be our universities. And Hofstadter wrote, what, in the 50s, the prime book on what anti-intellectualism in American life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not a new thing. It's, and frankly, it goes back to Salem, if you want. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is that puritanical ethic mm-hmm. that pervades American society, has ever since. And it's embodied now in this, uh, this notion of, well, let's bring ourselves back to the kingdom. I love the, love the story. We hear the story about the pilgrims came here to uh, basically experience religious freedom and f- promptly excluded anyone that wasn't of their belief from that same religious freedom until Roger Williams left yes. the Massachusetts Bay Colony fo- founded what then became the state, the colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations Indeed. is the full name, and established for the first time in America true religious freedom. And in fact, what was ironic about that entire experience was that in coming into what they felt was a fresh, new, empty territory, with disregard, of course, the indigenous folks yeah, that were here. It wasn't empty to them. They, <laughs> they basically, it's what's called, I guess, conformitarian germ. They, and... They etched into the earth of this land their puritanical ethic. And so ever since, we've had this force of a conformitarian germ. You stick with American exceptionalism, uh, the uniqueness of our American society. Explain American exceptionalism. To me, American exceptionalism is that notion that we're the uh, that beacon on the hill. That we're we're God's chosen people. We're God's chosen people. And frankly, I hate to say it, but I think there's a parallel, and mm-hmm. some maybe we can talk about that, that happens in Israel. This sense mm-hmm. of exclusiveness, mm-hmm. of exceptionalism that we translate either into one of two things. We uh, become isolationist because we're so good. We're so special that we don't want to be tainted by involvement mm-hmm. elsewhere. But then there's that other side of the, coin, the American coin that says we're so exceptional that really we need to transport this to other places. And that has caused our involvements in a variety of, of locations throughout the world to our great regret. I, I, I see the risk of that. Carl Sandburg wrote a wonderful piece about this. You know, we are the greatest nation, the greatest people. <laughs> we are the other, other that ever was. Right. And right. it ultimately leads to their own destruction because they're blind to their own – but, their own failures. But this business of American exceptionalism translates to, Mike, I think, into this avid protection of what the right wing, that the conservative think tanks are calling the Western intellectual heritage. Mm-hmm. And that Western intellectual heritage requires a denial of any of the sins committed by this nation. Uh, so we don't want to talk about slavery or – we certainly don't want to talk about its aftermath, the, the way it was extended into no. the late 19th no. and early 20th century. We don't want to talk about slavery. We don't want to talk about racism. We don't want to talk about sexism. We don't want to talk about anything that contaminate the minds of our children. Uh, I mean yesterday – yesterday in Indiana – they pulled a book, a beautiful book called The Faith in Our Stars. It's about a 16-year-old kid with cancer because somehow it would upset the children, the young people in class. Uh, Catalina Foothill School District in Pima County just took off Shakespeare 
from the lesson plans because there are passages in Shakespeare that are offensive. And the Hillsborough School District, yeah, that was Hillsborough School District in Florida. I mean, this is going on all over the place. Which is Tampa, basically. uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in Catalina, I'm sorry, it was uh, the um, Pima, the the chair of the GOP and followers in organizational titles about protecting Aris Jonas' children are claiming that Planned Parenthood will establish uh, abortion clinics in the schools. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. But they are obstructing school board meetings. They're advancing their agendas. Uh, and, you know, I don't know about you. I grew up in – you did grow up in Boston? Springfield. Okay. I grew up in Boston. When I was a kid – the John Birch Society was alive and well. There was a group called Young Americans Free, for Freedom. I know that ever since the 50s, this right-wing bunch, and I, I want to be, yes, I'm going to say that the, the right-wing bunch, the conservative think tanks, have been offended by the New Deal and have struggled for years diligently, tenaciously, which something the Democrats don't do, and populating the school boards, the town halls, commissions, to the point that... They succeeded now under the banner of MAGA to to get exactly what they want in the Supreme Court and in school boards. I think we have to be very vigilant about the dangers to American society with all that's happening. Back to universities. One of the things that strikes me, there are a lot of the – most of the political comics – won't go to universities now. It it was sort of where they came from, where they would get the audiences – but, I mean, any good comedian has to kind of move the edge a little bit. You know, yes. you, you got to be walk right up to the edge of what's OK, maybe maybe in risk going over sometime. Yeah. And uh, there's not a there's not a home for anything that doesn't fit in a lot of our universities. This I, is the, 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 the kind of the fascism of the left. Yes. Yes. I mean, I wonder how Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul would survive today. I mean, university administrations have chickened out in terms of leadership mm-hmm. in fostering an open intellectual discourse mm-hmm. and fold under the pressure of protests, whether from the left mm-hmm. or the right. And it's interesting how that's a complete flip. If you think of you go back to free speech movement in Berkeley, it was the staunch conservative established university establishment. Well, these guys yeah. are, you know, now the the super woke, <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. That uh, it has been, um, uh, you know, a complete transformation. I think young people today entering a university climate are cocooning themselves more and more and protecting themselves from controversy. I mean, this is at least what I hear. Sure, because if you know that that you express certain thoughts you're having, if I say that. Boy, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get shut down, massive social disapproval, or worse, and that is not the environment that is conducive to healthy debate and learning. No, and unfortunately, what I I find troubling is that there is a lack of a a voice at large, a national voice, some voice of conscience that is respected and credible that calls this stuff out and says, "Have you no?" Decency. No shame. (laughs) Have you no shame? Uh, What are you doing in terms of dumbing down America, of limiting the expanse of civil discourse? Uh, We don't have that. And, you know, that's a tough intellectual thing for people. It's easy when 
uh, what's getting shut down is something you disapprove of. But you have to understand that if you can tolerate somebody shutting down some competing belief of yours, they're coming after you at some point. You know, but Mike, I think there's something that goes beyond, and I think it in it influences what we're talking about in universities and schools and in the arts. And that is, and if there's a second thing related that troubles me the most, is the convergence of the forces of uh, big data, big data processing, Mm -hmm. analytics, algorithms, artificial intelligence, and the manipulation of media, disinformation, Mm -hmm. misinformation. I don't think we've ever had a situation where that convergence of forces in an environment where the the dark underbelly of America has been Mm -hmm. released – uh, has ever has ever existed this is this is a turbulent time when forces like that really a limit our sense of free will. Mm-hmm. Do we have free will any longer we don 't know what 's being done to us because the algorithms in social media you get on you express a few opinions, you will end up down a rabbit hole right. and you will find yourself very quickly only being exposed right. to those things that you already agree with. Right. Which doesn't matter whether it's left or right. You're going to go off to an extreme one way or the other because you're going to you're only going to get things confirming your belief system. Now their motives are commercial. They want to keep the eyeballs, and they have figured out that that's the way you engage people. You throw at them stuff that they're prone to believe anyway, and and or outrage. Uh, you know, outrage works too. Outrage of what the other side is doing, yeah. and that that. Yeah keeps eyeballs on the screen, which is part of the economic model. Sure. A misinformed, disinformed, less educated public is a great benefit to commerce. I mean, if you can manipulate and exploit. But the danger is we've now become so balkanized, haven't Mm -hmm. we, that people are now in their safe bucket zones. They listen to their preferred media. They indulge in confirmation bias. If I show you a fact, Mm -hmm. you're not going to believe my fact. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's incredibly dangerous. And – the universities used to be the bulwark against that. That's where you go and whatever it is you believe, somebody's going to challenge it yeah, I call and engage you in not um, not a personal attack but a, a, an argument against whatever it is that you argue on the facts. Right. I mean that's what I, I call it the bastions of democracy, uh, the whole concept of debate. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the foolishness with which presidential and, and other candidates get on a, on a media floor to discuss issues. There's no debate going on. Yeah, 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 it, yeah. it's the battle of the and, – and even the post-analysis is, you know, who got the best one-liner in, which are always pre-written. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they'll feed the candidate with three or four. These are – when you get the opportunity, these are the things you say because that'll that'll score a bunch of points. I personally – I mean, debate versus no debate, I'd take debate. But I think uh, a one-on-one, an hour, hour and a half with a good journalist who will probe your belief system down and several peel away levels. And that onion. Yeah because, peel, yeah, because they don't. If I could just add, this this whole thing, this issue of mind control and, and information control, you, you see it manifested actually in film. Now, I know Barbie and Oppenheimer are incredibly popular, but one of the things that I've observed and I wrote about recently was that most of what we're seeing is controlled by 
five big major studios. Now, we think of them as Disney, Universal, Columbia, and the like. They're all owned by huge telecommunications companies, global telecommunications countries, whose first priority is not the art. It's monetization. It's profitability. Mm -hmm. So what we're getting on the screen is not about – well. Let's, and that's why I so value independent filmmaking. It's not about raising consciousness about issues or putting a mirror to society that makes you think critically. Uh, it's what we now call entertainment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, in the, in the case, I've not seen either of the movies. Neither have I. <laughs> but, but I did read an interesting piece Bill Maher wrote about how they're just going with an easy narrative. In the case of Barbie, they're trying to they're trying to show how this was all the creature of you know all white guys, yeah. right? And they showed the Mattel board, twelve old white guys. Yeah. Only problem with that is if you look at the current facts. There are indeed 12 people on the Mittel board. Five of them are women. Yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't fit the narrative that they were trying. So, so that gets obscured. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm sure that people got incensed at those 12 old white guys doing this, but doesn't fit. I mean, I'm sure it's true when Barbie got created. I'm sure that I'm sure that. That was the demographic because that's that was a fair statement of of what a, a corporate America looked like at the yes. upper echelon. Yes, but it, it, it's not that anymore. No, and so when you think of who's actually influencing the control of information, the visions that we get, it's it's quite clear that this is the um, this is the privileged white guy elite. Uh, David Brooks wrote this great article, which you may have read, that asked the question: Are we to blame? by virtue of the fact that uh, it is that dominant white con male-controlled uh, power base that has demeaned uh, folks in the rural areas. I mean, you can understand why, to some extent, people have been attracted to the demagogues when you've down beaten them down and you've called them stupid and, and debased their intelligence. And, and I know that sometimes we all indulge in mm -hmm. criticizing those who have kind of – Nobody remembers anything as well as being insulted or, right. or, or dismissed. And they have been. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with them. I've, I find it ludicrous. I don't understand how they, they almost in a cult-like fashion follow the beat of, the drumbeat of lies and, and Trump. I didn't think we'd get that word in today, but we did. But they do. And so we're inclined to say they're stupid. But you know what? If you start talking to them and understand the fear that's underlying all of this, we have to figure a way to have a decent civil conversation mm -hmm. that transcends these boundaries. Because in political science, you may recall, I remember our professor saying, if you look at the left and the right, they start off first by saying, I disagree with you. And the other side says, I disagree with you more. And what happens is that they begin to polarize themselves to the point— You are evil. That, yes, that they're now on the polls. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is that the, the extremes are not really ends of a continuum. They're the ends of a circle. I don't know if radio <laughs> folk can see this. It's, it, they follow a circle. Mm -hmm. They meet. And their behaviors— and their totality, their authoritarian instincts, mm -hmm. their puritanism. Well, yeah, the, it's easier to see in the right. It has authoritarian mm -hmm. instincts. Where you see it in the left is, if, for example, we talked about the college campuses yeah. and the and, and and we don't want 
free speech because you're you're expressing unacceptable ideas and and the true answer to you know speech that's outrageous is more speech right. it's more reasoned not 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 prohibition on the other side you know in florida it's interesting that what was picked out of the 200-plus pages, and I actually mm-hmm. went through the strands of the Florida curriculum, the Board mm-hmm. of Education's curriculum. The piece that was picked out was the language about slaves' learning skills. Yep. In fact, I read, I read through those, and that's, that's the one that jumped out at me. It's the one that jumped out. And yet if you look at the larger context and you look at the attacks on schools and boards of education – that's not the issue. The issue is the promotion of a whitewashing of history mm-hmm. that cleanses it, sanitizes it of what mm-hmm. they believe is the evil left or more specifically what they decry as um, as an action civics. I grew up with the – I remember action civics means an experiential way of learning, Right. So not only do we learn in class, but we have a chance to go out and do projects in the community. They are against that. They don't want kids working in polls. They don't want kids having civic projects. It's stay in school, learn the basics. To some, that may sound, well, what's wrong with learning the basics? But you're now talking about constraining the opportunities for education by not covering stuff that is – why are we afraid? Of what we have accomplished or not accomplished or our deficiencies in society. Mm-hmm. There's that fear that's you know, incredible. Uh, spent uh, some time in China and that would be the biggest criticism. Have They have never looked honestly at the Mao area. They, they, so some bad things happened, but they, they, they never connected it back to him. Right. And we have the same kind of blind spot. Yeah. Not nearly as bad, yeah. but it's the same animal to say – it doesn't make you unpatriotic to acknowledge we did some things wrong, right. and some of those things are more present than you would than you would realize. You know, the outgrowth of slavery doesn't end with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, I know I grew up post World War II in a kind of post war or early you know suburban development, mm-hmm. federal VA mm-hmm. FHA approved, and you know what? Everybody there was white, and it wasn't an accident. Yeah. And and so that is uh, and for most people, the source of intergenerational wealth is housing. So it had a profound effect on who has money today in this country and who does not. Right. And the acknowledgement of that is very minimal and the and the dismissers of it want to say that, well, that's slavery and all that, that you know, that's hundred and fifty years old. No, it isn't. Right. It's today because of things that were done in the very recent history. Right. right. So agreed. But but it is all too often, you know, you you, you know, presented, oh, you can't say anything bad about this. Well you only get better if the it starts with truth. It starts with acknowledging truth and say, if we're going to fix something, the first thing we got to do is come to grips with what is and what has been. And then only only then can you say, all right, how do we deal with this? I find a lot of folks that I run into are astonished. And the question they ask, why, why didn't I learn this in school? Mm-hmm. Why didn't I learn about the abuses during the Reconstruction? I'll give you a big one, by the way. Yeah. Biggest one I can think of, and this will be concluding. Do you know – has the the question is has there ever been a successful insurrection against a duly elected government in the history of the United States? No. 
And the answer is yes, there has been. It was in Wilmington, North Carolina Uh in the 1890s. They elected a biracial government by honest democratic process and all the participants were run out of town or killed by the Klan. I did not know that. I did not either (laughs) until a year ago. I didn't learn that in school. You know, and and that to me is a pretty basic question. Has there ever been, you know, a successful? That's pretty basic. And the answer is yes. Yeah. And 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 it was basically a, a democratic biracial. Probably was yeah. Republican given the era of the time, but <laughs> a small d democratic uh, thing. And to me, that's that's way up there in terms of understanding our history. And it's liberating, isn't yeah. it? I mean, a culture that denies its history is not whole or complete. It's it's lacking something to fulfill itself. Well, I I promised people uh, an interesting discussion, uh, and we've certainly got one. Thank you very much, Herb. Hope you can come back sometime. I'd it's love been, to. Been, it went too long before getting you. My name's Mike O'Neill. The website is mikeoneill.org. That can be a vehicle for reaching me. Uh, by uh, email or social media. And your blog is at herbpain.substack.com. Here you go. See you next week in the Think Tank. Thank you, Mike. 